All right, we're in our uh, Bible lists study, and we were looking at these various topics and lists. Last week, we looked at the 25 proofs of the humanity of Christ and the fact that he was fully man, and we looked at those verses that dealt with that. And by the way, as I've said before, this comes from uh, Harold Wilmington's Bible lists that he compiled, and I've modified them a little bit, sometimes added a few more verses, but other than that, it's, uh, it's the same. And um, Luke, I think I turned this mic up just a little bit too much. That was my fault, not yours. Just turn that just a little bit. There you go. It has a little ring to it, so I will try to uh, not make... I'm here in the ring. I don't know if anybody else does, but uh, anyways, thank you. Uh, so tonight we're going to look at 37 proofs of the deity of Christ. We're not going to get down through all 37 of them. Uh, I think I've done 15, and that's more than just 15 verses, obviously. But I want to look at uh, this whole teaching and the doctrine concerning the deity of Christ. In other words, that Christ is fully God. So last week, fully man. Tonight, we'll look at the fact that he's fully God. And what does the scripture have to say about that? And before we begin, let's just ask the Lord to open his word to us. Lord, we are grateful for the Bible and for its teaching and practical instruction and Thank you, God, for the deep truths as well. And thank you for the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and who is the one, O oh Lord, who is fully God, fully able to save. And also, Lord, be recognizing he's fully man, able to save us who are in that race. And, O oh God, we are grateful for such a Savior. And tonight we pray that he might be exalted and we might come away from here tonight in a deeper relationship, deeper appreciation for who Jesus really is. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of the proofs of the deity of Christ. We're going to jump right into that. And one of the things about um, the, the perfections of God, we often talk about his omnipotence. What does that mean? Omnipotence. He's all... All what? Yeah, all, well, he's always, always, but he's all powerful. Um, omnipotence, and that deals with that. And then we talk about uh, all-knowing. What's that word? Omniscient, right. And then uh, he is also the one who is always present or omnipresent. And those are um, things that the scriptures teach. And we'd have to say if that's what the Bible teaches us about God, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, then is Jesus, as he is described in Scripture, and as we see the account of Christ, does he meet that criteria? And so tonight we're going to look at those three perfections. Often sometimes we call them attributes. I, I think perfection is really a better term because attribute implies there's better qualities than others. And with God, all things are perfect, aren't they? And these are his perfections. He is omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent. And so we're going to start with omnipotence and... We find where Jesus displays, and I'm just using a few examples, there are many examples in the scriptures, but where he is omnipotent or all-powerful all over disease. That's the first one, over disease. And there are lots of illustrations of that. When Jesus was here on earth, he, he healed many people of their diseases. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 8 <clears throat> and verses 1 to 4. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Here we see in this miracle the cleansing of a leper. Uh, Very, very important. And remember, Matthew is writing to the Jewish people. That's the sort of the gospel of Matthew's audience when you look at it. Um, He's writing to that Jewish audience. And it would make sense that the miracles he records and the details of those miracles would uh, show that, um, that this is Messiah. This is the Christ. And the scripture revealed to us that this would be God with us, right? Emmanuel. And here's a leper. Jesus does something that was contrary to the law. He touches a leper. And that, you'd say, whoa, did he break the law of Moses in doing so? Because they were not to touch a leper or touch anything that touched a leper. And the leper wasn't supposed to be in his vicinity either. If you read the law of the leper, he was to, if he was unclean, determined to be unclean, he had to, to, to not be around anybody that was, except for other lepers, and he had to tell people he was unclean, unclean. And we see Jesus touching the leper and healing the leper. Uh, there's a whole sermon in that, and I don't want to go that way because we've got a lot to cover. But, but I look at that and I say, wow, that would have definitely brought some attention to things, right? And indeed, he would have been a violation of the laws of Moses had the man not been healed. But the man is healed as soon as Jesus touches him. And then, in keeping with the law of Moses, he tells the leper, go and show yourself to the priest. You go back to the book of Leviticus and you read there that that was the requirement to be deemed healed and cleansed. You had to go to the priest, show yourself, and then... Um, there were uh, gifts, two birds that had to be offered, uh, living birds that had to be offered to God. And they were offered um, with hyssop and with cedar and uh, all, of, all of that and water running and, and having to be bled. Uh, picture really of salvation and the healing that is from sin. And leprosy was a type or a picture of an incurable disease that was only curable by God. That was it. And I would dare say that there were there were priests that didn't see that in their whole life. They ministered in the temples, they ministered in the tabernacle, they ministered other places, and they never saw a leper cleansed. There are, there are of course, illustrations in the Old Testament, like of Naaman the leper who received healing. Um, but when you look, there really isn't a whole lot. And all of a sudden, here's a healed leper. And we see that Jesus, as a testimony to the priests... He says, don't go tell anybody. Just show yourself to the priests. And I'll tell you what, that leper, imagine him going into the priest, and they would have known who he was. <clears throat> I'm sure the priest was like, I don't want to see you. Get out of my presence. And the leper says, no, I'm healed. Now he has, to, he has to go at it. And there, proof that Jesus indeed was God. Healing of diseases. And he did so in keeping with the law that God laid down as well. <clears throat> we see in Luke chapter 4. In verse 38, now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, that's Peter's house, but Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever, and we find out Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and they made request of him concerning her. And so he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. Again, maybe not something you think is that serious, people have a fever, right? 
But this was an important thing, and as soon as Jesus rebukes it, it goes, just like that. Um, He was omnipotent not only over diseases, but also over demons, the spiritual realm. And I would say that um, the fact that Jesus had control over the demonic and the spiritual realm shows indeed that he is the one who has authority over that, and only God has authority over that. Matthew 8, verse 16 says, And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Here Jesus' word banishes these demons. And it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And again, that's attributed in Isaiah to Messiah, but to the Lord, just so you know. And he fulfills prophecy in that. Again, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. And when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? And um, I think these demons understood exactly who was in their midst and who was in their presence. And it says, have you come here to torment us before our time? Now, what is that a reference to? I think that's a reference to the the final judgment of the demonic realm and, and sinners as well cast off into a lake of fire. That's not happened yet. That is coming. And here these demons, um, are, and, and that is attributed to God, isn't it? And when you look at that judgment, and these demons recognize judgment has come, and they're worried judgment has come early for them. Now a good way off from them there was a herd of many swine feeding, and so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. Suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. You see the power that Jesus had over the demonic. We see that also in Matthew chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, thank you. Uh, Mark chapter 5 is the story of the, the man who meets, he's out of the tombs, and here's an account as well. And this one comes out. And he's the man that no one could bind. They had tried to bind him with chains and fetters, and he broke them. Um, he was someone who was naked. You know, Satan will strip you naked and make you ashamed. You don't even know it. And he is cutting himself. He's doing self-harm and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus appears on that, that land. And it says, and when he saw Jesus from afar off, he ran and worshipped him. Now, only God is, is given the place of worship if jesus was just a rabbi or a teacher or just a human prophet maybe a prophet from god even he would have immediately rebuked the man for worshiping him he doesn't and it just shows us that even demons and satan have to present themselves before god and they have to ascribe worth to god And he cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? By the way, that's the phrase that appears in the book of Daniel over and over again, the Most High God. 
The word son there, again, does not denote as procreation, as an offspring, but a relational thing. It's a relationship. There's an eternal father. With that, there's an eternal son, always being God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The term son of the most highest uh, is the, the, the son is that it identifies who in that case. I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And, and he got it right. He knew, um, even though this de- demonic possessed man, uh, demon possessed man was being tormented. And we know he was delivered, wasn't he? He was delivered in his right mind. And what does he do? He goes and tells his people. <clears throat> Luke chapter 4, verse 35, or verse 30 says, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching. His word was with authority. Uh, I can only imagine what it would have been like to sit in the synagogue with Jesus teaching. Imagine that. huh? I've had some pretty good teachers in my life. I'm thankful for what God's done and gifted people. But imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach with authority now in the synagogues there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice saying let us alone what have we to do with you jesus of nazareth did you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god again this demon speaks and knows that this indeed is god But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Again, power over the demonic world. He was omnipotent over men. Over and over again. So not only he was omnipotent over disease and demons, but over men, over people. And there are times where, for instance, Jesus would go out as they were seeking to kill him, and he'd walk right through the midst of them. And nothing he wasn't harmed remember at the at the synagogue that happened um here's one when jesus passed on from there he saw a man named matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him follow me so he rose and followed him you'd say well you know who was matthew and did he he probably was aware who of who jesus was he would have been um however here's jesus and he looks at matthew who is a tax collector he's um Somebody that would not have had any fellowship with his own people. He's Jewish, but he would have no fellowship with his own people because he had sold himself out to Rome. That's the way they looked at it. He was, the Bible refers to it as a publican. And he's sitting at the seat of customs. So that means he's a customs officer, you know? And um, I know some customs officers. Some, I have a good friend who's a customs officer. But, but generally speaking, they're not the guys you like, you know, because... Uh, they give you a hard time and, and when they're in their official capacity and all those things. Jesus looks at him and sees this man who could be, who could be a follower. And, and he's the one who was used to write the gospel of Matthew. Think about that. Wow. Jesus says, follow me, and, and he does. Matthew, Levi. John chapter 17. Jesus is praying, he says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh. 
that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus is given the power, um, in this case the will of the Father, because he had given up the use of that power to the will of the Father, but the power over all men, all flesh. And uh, again, we see the omnipotence he had, or all powerfulness over men. He was omnipotent over nature. We see the storms, right? In Matthew chapter 8. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And the answer is, he's God. Only God can command nature and command nature to, to change on a, on a, you know, by his word in, in doing that. Again, Jesus had that power. <clears throat> he was omnipotent over sin. That's another one. And this was a hang-up for people. Because, you see, only God can forgive sin, Right? Matthew chapter 9. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. So not only is he going to heal this man, but he sees beyond that, sees the faith involved and faith in God is that trust that we have and he's promised to save us if we believe on him if we have faith in him and he does son be of good cheer your sins are forgiven you and at once some of the scribes said within themselves this man blasphemes because you see the scribes knew the word of god they were the ones entrusted with actually writing out the copies of the bible i mean that's how they did it they would take a scroll and they would take a previous scroll and then they would write that out and they knew the word of God that was their their job and then on top of that they were in charge of making sure those were protected and that it would be passed on correctly all of that and they had quite a a a way of doing that a science of doing that for instance they assigned a numeric value to every single letter of the scroll and the jots and the tittles, the little accent marks and everything. And at the end of transcribing something, um, they would come to the end of that and they would take all the numeric values of each letter and each accent and add them up. And if the sum was different than the previous one, they knew they had a mistake and they had to start over. These men were meticulous in the job of transcribing the Bible. And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, some of them said he's blaspheming against God because they knew that only God can forgive sin. He would be blaspheming if he wasn't God. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, there he is, omniscient, right? Said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. 
And then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Not only does he forgive the man's sins, but he heals the man of his paralysis, and, and this all takes place. And he arose and departed to his house. And now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. And they understood this is different. Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Then he calls Matthew, right? Again, we see the power he had over man, over nature, over sin. He had power over traditions. And that's a strange one, huh? Traditions grip us, don't they? I think in many ways, traditions can grip us harder than, than probably demonic possession in some cases, or one of the same. Sometimes traditions hold people back from actually um, exercising true faith. And in this case, uh, we see that in Matthew 9, a little bit beyond that. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold many publicans or tax collectors and sinners came to, and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He's breaking tradition. And these people had sold themselves out and they were not to have any fellowship. And yet here they are eating with Jesus. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, sacrifice and the rituals and the traditions of the Jews was what everything was about. And the religious leaders were all caught up in that. And all of a sudden, here comes a teacher, someone who sits and eats with sinners. And Jesus says, I will have mercy. He quotes from the Old Testament and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And that's true, isn't it? You can't come to repentance unless you know you're a sinner. And for the, some of the people that are the hardest to reach are those that are the religious or the ones that are bound by their religious traditions. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast? There it is again tradition the religious people were fasting jesus wasn't and jesus said to them can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them there's a picture there he is not having a time of mourning it's a time where he is gathering for himself a bride but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wineskins and old wineskins, new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled but the wineskins are ruined um, or and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. And he's, he's teaching again on this issue of of where the traditions are at on that. Uh, what do I have next here? Uh, Luke chapter 7. And he was omnipotent over death. That's a big one, isn't it? Um, you know, if anybody had power, that you'd say, what? If somebody granted you the power to do something, I mean, that's a big one, isn't it? Because death is our great enemy, and I know of no one who can stop death except one that's jesus and that's god 
Luke chapter 7. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Picture this, right? A scene that has been represented how many billions of times on this earth of someone carrying out a loved one's body headed to the graveyard. And we see that happening right now in that same part of the world where they're burying their loved ones and young people as well. And there's a lot of grieving and a lot of crying and a lot of mourning over death. And that's the scene that plays out here as it's recorded. And look what it says. And the Lord saw her and he had compassion on her and he said, do not weep. Listen, my friends, there's a coming a day when he will finally look to us and say, don't weep anymore. Don't weep. Look what it says. Then he came and he touched the open coffin. By the way, doing that, he would become ceremonially unclean under the Jewish law, under the Mosaic law. If you touched a dead body or something that touched a dead body, you became unclean. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Wow. I mean, that's just, that's power. Then fear came upon all and they glorified God. Saying a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people. That is a term by the way, that is used in the Old Testament in reference to Messiah, referring to God visiting his people. And I believe his name, Emmanuel, represents that perfectly. It's not the word that is used underneath that, but um, it's the idea of God with us. He, John puts it this way, that he tabernacled with us, right? Uh, he dwelt with us. The word became flesh and dwelt And that's the same idea. He has visited us in our proximity. He's omnipotent over death. Luke chapter 8, here's another account. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. And then her spirit returned and she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And uh, there are three instances of Jesus raising people from the dead in the Gospels. You have the widow's son that we just read about. He had been dead um, for a few hours. We, we come to this girl. She had been dead just for a short amount of time, but she was dead. And, but then you go to John chapter 11, and you come to a man who's been dead for four days. Lazarus, right? And the testimony of those who were still in mourning over his death, and by the way, he had been entombed in grave clothes and then put into a tomb and sealed. He was already buried. And Jesus comes to the grave and he says, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. This is after they were to remove that, the, the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. There he is. 
And we're thankful for that. Later on, it says this in John uh, eleven forty eight. It says, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. That was the, the um, Pharisees. They saw the same miracle that those at the grave saw. And instead of receiving him in faith, instead, it makes them angry. And I, I want to tell you that because sometimes people say, oh, you know, if I saw a miracle, I would believe. And we see over and over again in Scripture, people witnessed miracles and they chose not to believe. Their traditions and their way of life and everything else gripped them and their sin gripped them far more than what they had just witnessed. And it says, if we let him alone uh, like this, everyone will believe in him. They were worried like Jesus is going to have a following. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. What were the Pharisees concerned about? Losing their nation and losing their place. And they had sold themselves really out to Rome in that way. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Little did Caiaphas know what he was prophesying right there. Because Jesus indeed would die for his people and for his nation. And he would actually die for the whole world. But he was going on the tradition of Rome. And that was, remember, that one man should die for the people, right? That was going to have to happen. It was going to be there. And uh, that would certainly put Rome back in favor with the Pharisees and vice versa if they offered that up. It's funny, huh? You plot to kill somebody. But it shows again that Jesus' own death he had power over as well. And he raised himself from the dead. And by the way, Jesus said that, didn't he? He said in, uh, in John 3, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's referring to the temple of his body. So Jesus raised himself. Galatians chapter 1, it says the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And in Romans chapter 8, it says the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So the question is, who raised Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead, the triune God. Um, But again, he had omnipotence over death. Well, he also was omniscient. And we'll look at his omniscience. Now, here's an instance in John chapter 1. Now, the calling of the disciples. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I don't think he was being like, uh, you know, flippant about it or anything like that. The scriptures really don't show a lot coming out of Nazareth, although he is the branch, right? And he comes out of Nazareth. But anyways... Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And I can imagine Nathanael, he's like, Who is this man? Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Wow. Here's Nathaniel, and he was somewhere under a fig tree, 
and he's thinking about whatever, doing whatever and all that. And here comes Philip along and he says, hey, come see this. This one is who's the Messiah. That's what he's telling him. The one the prophets talked about. Okay, I'll do that. And the man he meets says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, he wasn't there. He wasn't present all that. Obviously, he has to be taken to Jesus. And he knows who he is. He calls him by name. He's omniscient. And I, I like that. You know, that tells me this, that he knows you. When you find yourself maybe under your fig tree somewhere, wondering about life and wondering what's going on, and Jesus knows you. He calls you by name. He calls me by name. He saw me before anybody else did. He knew my days. He knows the end of my days. He knows every day in my life and every moment. And he knows my thoughts. Wow. He's omniscient. He was omniscient about the plot of Judas. John 6, 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. Now he didn't tell them who yet, but he knew one would betray him. He was omniscient about the hearts of the Pharisees. Here's Matthew 12. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. (laughs) Think about that. Jesus knew their thoughts. You know, that would be pretty unnerving when you're, um, you're in the room and you have a thought about someone and all of a sudden that person looks at you and knows exactly what you're thinking and says it. And they understood this is someone who's different. He wasn't just reading them. He actually knew their thoughts. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 18. <clears throat> then behold, men brought... On a bed, a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop, let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this is Luke's account. Um, I believe that's right. Yeah, Luke's account of that same account that we read earlier in the other Gospels. And he, he, they're reasoning in their minds over this whole thing. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Again, showing his power in that realm. Luke chapter 6. And uh, I guess I'll read this, uh, this passage. It says, Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered them saying, Have you not read this, what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? 
And he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those who were with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now he's making himself equal with God, just so you know that. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there who was right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Again, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he trips them up. He does. They're mad because he's got them. He says right before he does this, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And of course it's lawful um, to do that. God actually made provision for that. And they knew it. But they didn't know what to do with Jesus. And again, you have the illustration of the Samaritan woman. Um, uh, I'll pass that one here. Hold on. Matthew chapter 5. I'm looking here. I think I've got my ahead of myself. Uh, he knew the thoughts of the scribes. So that's the same one. Um, it goes from the Pharisees to them. Matthew 9, 3. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said... Why do you think evil in your hearts? We, we looked at this earlier on that one. Um, he also knew if people were sincere. And that's another thing. Because not all the Pharisees and all the scribes were evil in their mindset. Some were very sincere. Some were indeed truly looking for Messiah. I think Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, was a good illustration of that. He is one that comes and um, comes to Jesus by night, right? And he asks him some pointed questions and Jesus gives him some really big answers, doesn't he? Some important answers and all that. And Nicodemus, we see him later on, seems to be a man of faith. He's a follower of Jesus. Uh, there were scribes that did the same thing. In Mark chapter 12, it says, Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well. And asked him, which is the first commandment of all? He's asking, I think, in all sincerity. And Jesus, look at his answer. Jesus answers him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now that's an important, very important verse from the book of Deuteronomy. Because it's the unity of God. And that's what that verse says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, singular, our God, the Lord, is one. Now, it's interesting because in that phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, that's singular, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, and that's plural. The Lord is one. Jesus lays that right out. And they would have said, you know, in that, that scribe as well, that, that's true. That's absolute truth. And it is. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. He's not being flattering either. He's, he's totally getting it is what he's doing. And he says, you have spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that is true. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David. Now here's this, this scribe, and he's, he's very sincere. And, and he, he says, Amen, Jesus, there's only one God. And then Jesus turns to the scriptures, and he says, How is it that the scribes say that Christ um, is the son of David? So Messiah is going to come out of David's line. And then he says, quotes from Psalm 110, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now, the answer is not given to us in this. But Jesus plants a thought for these scribes. David said that the Messiah would come out of his line. He would be his son. But yet David called him Lord. Wrap your mind around that. And this is the same scribes that were just heard there's only one God. Jesus was making himself equal with God. And he was showing in scripture where David believed that. That Messiah would be God. Anyways, there's there's a lot more that could be said with that too. But um, you you get the point. Hopefully you do anyways. Uh... Let's see here. He knew the Samaritan woman. Remember uh, John chapter 4? And he tells her, go and tell your husband, right? And she says, I I don't have a husband. And he says, rightfully so. She'd been married several times, right? All of that. And yet we find that... um, um, We find uh, later on... I'm just picking that up. Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem uh, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She's making a connection. Because the Bible tells us that the Lord would, would know and discern the thoughts and intents of all the hearts. And Messiah would be that one. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This Samaritan woman was getting it. And Jesus says, I'm him. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. That's number one. 
Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And it is. He was all-knowing. He knew the history of that woman. He knew her and he had never met her yet. The first time Jesus met her was there at the well of Samaria. She was a woman of Samaria. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet he knew everything about her. And she connected the dots. He's the Christ. She knew. Then they went out of the city and came to him, the Bible says. The men came. Uh, what other things here? Matthew chapter... Oh, he, he knew the, the problems of his disciples. That's another indication. And I'll quit it here. I've just got a couple of verses. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he uses a little child to illustrate to his disciples how, how things should work. <laughs> we have to become like a child. Uh, but he knew his disciples' hearts. He knows your heart. And he knows your concerns. And then um, he was omnipresent. That's the third attribute, right? And you say, well, where does it show us that Jesus was present elsewhere at the same time? And there's a, a few scriptures. But Matthew eighteen twenty, Jesus said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. How could Jesus be in the midst of his congregation? When two or three are gathered, because he can. And that's, again, because he is, he is fully God, but he also, through the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit, is present with believers, and eternally present. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, um, in verse, verse 20, says, Teaching them to observe all things, that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How is it that Jesus could be with us all? Again, he promises he's with us, and he's able to be here in Madawaska with me and with you tonight as much as he is somewhere in the far reaches and corners of Papua New Guinea or the middle of Russia or in Antarctica, where there's a Christian I know who's there right now at the South Pole. Uh, and, and he's there, and he's getting ready to ship out finally after a long winter. Uh, in November, it's, they're finally able to fly out for the first time in about six months. And uh, Jesus is with him, too, you know? How is it that he could do that? Well, because God is everywhere present. And... Uh, and there are other ones as well. For instance, he tells Nicodemus, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. That sounds confusing. He says to Nicodemus, he says, no one's gone up to heaven except for he who's come down. That is the son of man who is in heaven. How can he be in heaven and on earth at the same time unless he's God? Um, anyways, he's omnipresent. And he's omniscient and he's omnipotent. And you see that part of the proof of the deity of Christ. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for giving it.